morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with us as we begin. So good to see you. We're going to celebrate what Jesus did for us when he saved us by dying on the cross and rising again. We are no longer in that grave. Let's sing this morning. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb till I met you.
Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So great to see you all here today. I'm glad that you chose to spend this weekend with us. And uh, my name is Scott. I'm the worship pastor here at Peckway Church. And it is always a pleasure and a privilege to worship with you uh, each and every week. And, you know, here at Peckway Church, um, we love to connect people with God and one another. And so it's our hope that you're going to experience that today as you worship with us. And if you're a first-time guest, we would love to connect with you. Each week, we ask everyone to fill out a connection card. And that's just a, it's a great way for us to be able to provide you with resources and to be able to pray with you. And so there are a couple of ways to be able to fill out that card. One is physically here in person. Uh, there is a green connection card inside of your bulletin. Uh, so simply fill that out. There's front and back there, and you can drop that in the box on your way out as you exit this morning. Uh, and then also, if for those of you viewing online, there's going to be a connect link in the chat window that you can click on and fill out the digital card there uh, as well. But if you're a first-time guest, you can simply take out your phone and you can text the word hello to 717-872-5679. And so in doing so, we hope to be able to provide you with resources uh, and things that, you know, important information about our church, open a personal line of communication, and then also uh, just be able to give you everything you need to see if Peckway Church is a good fit for you. And so by texting or filling out that card, uh, we'll be able to stay in contact with you. So again, just text the word hello to 717-872-5679 so that we can say hi and be able to uh, say thank you for visiting also, uh, if you have any questions, you can stop out in the lobby uh, out at the welcome desk, and our staff would love to, to chat with you, and uh, we also have a special gift for first-time guests, a, a book that we'd love to provide for you as well. If you need a Bible, you can also stop there as well, or take the one that's in the pew in front of you. Um, you know, as we continue our, our sermon series today, we're going to be talking about favoritism, and uh, you might have already glanced at your notes inside of the bulletin this morning or online, but... You know, as I was thinking through that, just I kind of boiled it down to trust and loving people like God loves people, you know. And so uh, whenever we start showing favoritism, it kind of reveals, are we trusting uh, our own network, our own uh, ways of doing things? And then, you know, are we are we weighing things on a scale, people specifically? And, uh, you know, are we trying to get ahead by using people, those kind of things, or our social network? What is it? And so, but we need to trust God, right? And, uh, and when we start doing that, when we start showing favoritism, we're not loving people like God loves people because God does not show favoritism. He loves us all unconditionally. And, uh, and so uh, we're going to look at that today in God's word, and we're going to hear what he has to say and how we can live a life that is glorifying to him by not doing that. So I look forward to us hearing that message a little bit later in the service. I'm going to invite you to stand once again. We're going to sing about the great things that God is doing. And one is that he has rescued us from sin.
on the cross that we can sing about him doing great things for us. And so we continue our worship today as we worship him singing hallelujah. Thank you for the cross, Jesus.
with me. Jesus, we are thankful today for what you did for us on the cross, how you shed your blood for us, how you went willingly, uh, God, to um, pay the the cost, the ransom uh, for the weight of our sin, for the wrongs we had done, but uh, how we were able to exchange them because of what you did. So we thank you today, Jesus. Thank you for the great things that you're doing in our hearts and a lot in our lives as a result of our obedience of following after you. So Jesus, today as we come to this time, to your word, as we look into this mirror today, God, as we see, uh, Lord, uh, do we see your reflection? Are we reflecting what you've called us to be, what you've called us to do? Um, God, are, are we not in line with that? And then, God, I pray for those who might not have experienced your great love 
yet, Jesus, those who have not given their hearts and their lives to you. I pray, God, as they hear about you, as they take this next step in their journey, Father, that they would experience your love. So, Lord, open our hearts and our ears and our minds to, uh, God, look and see what you've done, Jesus. Uh, And, Lord, yeah, change us to be like who you've called us to be. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And as you settle in, I just want to say to Scott, to the worship team, to the tech team, thank you for, for me at least, that wonderful reminder of the hope that we have in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I really, truly needed those words that started that song. You know, I would be hopeless without the goodness. And, and the, the reason I say that, I don't know about you, I don't know how the, the events of these last two years and now the, the last four days have struck you, but it certainly has struck a nerve in my heart. Someone who grew up in the midst of the Cold War kind of thought that was behind us, and now we have war in Ukraine and the loss of life and the uncertainty. And so just to be able to know that I personally would be a slave of darkness, that despair, that hopelessness, uh, prejudice, all of that if it wasn't for the cross. And so today I, I really am thankful for that song. And I want to get us started in, in perhaps an unusual way, maybe even an uncomfortable way, because I want to pose to you a <clears throat> personal and I would suggest a very pointed question. And it's as much for me as it is for you. So I say that to say, please don't turn me out once I ask the question. I want you to hang with me. I want you to answer the question. But we're talking today, as Scott said, about showing favoritism. So here's how I want to begin today. I want to ask you a question. What kind of snob are you? Now just think about that for a second, and, and I, the reason I ask that question is because I believe we're all snobs somewhere in our life, okay? So the question is, what kind of snob are you? Where's, where's the prejudice? Where's the favoritism? For example, some of you may be coffee snobs, and I'll try my best not to make eye contact with anyone in particular, but the reality is, you know, in other words, for you, even Starbucks doesn't cut it, okay, right? I mean, it's, Starbucks is fine for a quick caffeine fix, but the reality is for you, a good cup of coffee means Kenya AA beans brewed in purified water at exactly 203 degrees and done in a French press. I mean, that's a cup of coffee for you. Some of you are getting blessed. I won't, I won't mention names. <laughs> okay, but, but some of you, you know, you say, I, I'm not a coffee snob, but let me ask you, maybe you're a food snob. You know, I was talking to my daughter last night, I said, Callie, help me with this, and she said, well, Dad, I know for me that people in my life here in Calgary, that I, I, I know people that are food snobs when it comes to Italian food, that Italian, you know, the Olive Garden doesn't cut it, right? And maybe for you, it's not Italian food, maybe it's, you know, maybe, I don't know, it, it's Mexican food, it's authentic Chinese food, but for whatever reason, you find yourself to be a food snob, but We're in Lancaster County, and so I I know this to be a fact. Some of us are truck and tractor snobs, right? I mean, if we're honest, I mean, the reality is for us, it has to be domestic. But even having said that, you know, it's not good enough to simply be a domestic, that the reality is we would never dream of driving anything manufactured by GM, or we would rather push our lawn mode than to ever drive something painted green, right? I mean, that's just the reality. We're truck and tractor snobs. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal one of my own snobberies. I might as well say it because if I don't, you're going to pick it out anyhow. Some of us are firearm snobs. We're gun snobs. In other words, your shotguns must be Italian and your rifles must be Finnish. Otherwise, you just don't want it. If you don't know what I'm talking about, see me after the service. I'll recruit you. I'll convert you. But the reality is, folks, you know, maybe you're, you're not a gun snob. You're not a coffee snob, a food snob. Maybe you're a clothes snob. 
You know, there's certain brands that you have to have. Maybe you're a lawn snob. I mean, you know, you've got to have the nicest lawn in the neighborhood. Maybe you're a house snob. Maybe you're a vacation snob. I don't know what it is, and I really don't know what, what it is for you. But here's what I know for every one of us. Every one of us, left to ourselves, is a snob. We can be snobby people. And I want to suggest to you, and here's how this ties in today, the world advance, what we've lived through the last few years. We're all snobs, especially, especially when it comes to other people. We can really be snobby when we think about other people. And that's what James is going after today. As we continue through the book of James, James is going after the fact that when it comes to other people, we can truly be snobs. And that's why he rates this. I want you to listen to it. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Now, let me read that again. Let me slow it down. I want you to soak in it for a second. My dear brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, how can you claim to have faith in our Lord, in Jesus Christ, if you favor some people over others? Now, again, I'm just being honest with you, being transparent with you folks. I needed to soak in that this week particularly after Wednesday and what took place in the Ukraine. Because as I said, as a kid that grew up in, in the, you know, the, the Cold War era, there were some prejudices that welled up inside me. There, there were some less than Jesus-y feelings that came to my heart and mind. And, I, and maybe for you, it maybe it's not that. Maybe for you, it's when you see someone else in a mask or you don't see someone in a mask, that some of that snobbery begins to surface. And, and so here's what I want us to notice. At the very beginning of this, kicks things off. James says, I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, that if you claim to model your life after Jesus, if he is your example, if he is your model, then you need to understand you shouldn't show favoritism because favoritism is contrary to the values, to the mission, to the life, to the example of Jesus. And just so we clear, let me define favoritism. Favoritism is when you and I begin to value one person over another person simply on superficial subjective standards, superficial subjective metrics that you and I come up with ourselves. There's nothing moral about this. There's nothing biblical about it. It's just things that we make up, like I don't like your brand attractor. And, and James is really helping us understand exactly what favoritism is by the word that he uses. Now, we translate a favoritism, but in the Greek, in the original language that James wrote in, it's a compound word. In other words, it's made up of two separate words brought together, a compound word. That's about as much as I paid attention to in English class. But the reality is, I want to tell you what that compound word is. The first part of the word is prosopon. Now, Lara probably remembers this because she helped me study Greek as college students, but prosopon simply refers to the face. That's the literal meaning face. In other words, it's my mug. It's what you see when you look up here, you know, between my shoulders and my hair. That's my face, okay? The other word, the other part of that compound word that we translate favoritism is labano. Now, labano in Greek means to take hold of, to grasp. And so what James is saying here about favoritism is his, what he's describing as favoritism is when you and I take hold of another person's appearance and we make it to be everything. That we act somehow that that's what really matters, is how they look on the outside, their personal appearance, okay? That's what James is after here. That's what he's talking about, is favoritism. And let's be honest, we do that far too often, don't we? And I want you to think back to high school. I want you to think back to junior high school, because here's what I know. I lived through it just like you did. We often show favoritism in really, really ugly ways in that stage in our life, right? We're not nearly as discreet. We're not nearly as slick in those years of life. Let me give you one true example, true story. 
Her name was Martha. And she was a young girl who was, was shy. And, and in some ways, and even the way we describe it, again, this, this issue is she just didn't have many friends. But during their senior year, the teacher decided to pair Martha up with one of the most popular girls in school, a girl by the name of Julie. She paired them up to be lab partners in chemistry, and just the way things worked out, they became friendly. I wouldn't say they became friends, but they became friendly. And so Julie one day decided to invite Martha to her house for a Halloween party, a gathering she was going to have for, for other classmates. And to put this in perspective, folks, this was the first time since Martha was eight that she was ever invited to a party. Ten years. First invitation since she was eight. When Martha arrived, she was excited and terrified all at the same time. And so she went around and she said hi to a few people that she did know that were there. And then she got a Diet Coke and she hid in the corner to the best of her ability. And in the corner, she kind of just paid attention to what was going on in the room, paid attention to the conversation. She noticed at the far corner of the room, there was a group of boys kind of looking around the room, kind of whispering and talking in quiet tones and then laughing hilariously, uncontrollably at some times. And as she watched that, she suddenly realized they were all looking at her. And then the boys whispered something, and then they began to laugh like they never laughed before. I mean, louder and harder than they ever laughed. And Martha didn't know what was going on, but she knew if she could, she'd just melt into the wall. Well, later on in that evening, one of the boys who had been a part of that group, for whatever reason, came and kind of sat not next to her, but close to her, close enough that Martha thought to herself, you know what, I'm going to screw up my courage. I'm going to find out what that was all about. And so you look to the young man, the, her classmate, and said, what were you guys laughing about over there earlier? And he looked a little sheepish, and he said, well, we were playing a game. And of course, Martha said, so what kind of game were you playing? So, said, well, we were playing a game where you kind of look around the room, you pick someone out, and you kind of, and, and you, you try to say, what animal, animal does this person resemble? And he said, so for example, we looked at Julie, the, you know, the popular girl, the host of the party, and we said, you know what, she looks like a deer. She, she, she's a deer. Then we looked at her boyfriend, Matt, and we said, you know what, he's a giraffe. I guess he had an unusually long neck, I don't know. And then they, he said, then Cheryl, for example, we figured she was a chipmunk. He said, well, what about me? I mean, I saw you do me. What did you say I was? And without me missing a beat, Without any hesitation, he said, oh, you were easy. You're a dog. And then he laughed, and he walked away. But folks, that's what James is going after here. And he wants his readers to feel what I hope you're feeling in reaction to that story of how wrong it is, how evil it is, how hateful it is. And so he writes this. Take a listen to what he writes. He says, for example, suppose someone comes in your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. And another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention to the good to, and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you could stand over there. Or you know what else? Sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Now, again, let me tell you an assumption that I'm operating on this morning that I really do mean, folks. I'm assuming, and I really do believe that most of us could never imagine ourselves acting like that in church, someone coming to church and us acting that way. But it happens, and I want you to know it happens. But even if you can't imagine yourself doing that, if you've never seen that happen, and I have, I don't want you to miss 
what James is trying to get at here because James's point is, folks, that he is going after your tendency and my tendency, our corporate tendency to judge other people based on external appearances, about the way they look, the way they dress. And let's be honest about it, folks, we've all done it. You know, it, it, it's rich versus poor, white versus black, educated versus uneducated, pretty versus plain, Christian, non-Christian, mask-wearing, non-mask-wearing. You, you name it, folks, but we've all done it in some shapes, some form. Now, again, I want you to hear what James is not saying. James is not saying that, that we should never make any kind of judgments. There are certain judgments as Christians we ought to make about people, and, and those really are issues related to character. Do they have integrity? Are they honest? But that is not what James is getting after here. That's not what he's addressing. What he's addressing here is prejudice. And prejudice is exactly what the word says. It's prejudging. When we're prejudiced, folks, what we are doing is we're judging another person without ever having really a reason or a basis for the judgment. It's just purely subjective. We are judging on appearances and appearances alone. And favoritism, if you say, well, what's the difference? Favoritism is simply when we take that prejudice and we assign a value to a person on the front end. Again, without ever having a basis or real reason for reaching that judgment. And again, we do it all the time. We do it in class. We do it. We do it in terms of economics. We do it with education. We do it with appearance. We do it in all sorts of ways. Now, in this particular context, James is concerned about his readers showing favoritism to, to somebody, well, let me put it this way, his concern that his, his readers, the Christians, those first century Christians, are making judgments about who should be given special attention and who shouldn't be given special attention purely on economics, purely on wealth. And, and, and really, James gets at that when it says, when you read there, he says, they're wearing fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. In the Greek, it literally is, that literally means expensive jewelry. It literally means gold-fingered. If you read in the Greek, that's what it is, because in that day, when you had it, you flaunted it. You wore it. And they, they, so it wasn't one ring. It was multiple rings on your hand. So he says, somebody walks in, and they're gold-fingered. Just kind of think seven or eight Rolexes, okay? That's what it's saying. We see that, and he says we immediately respond in preferential ways, in ways that we're trying to ingratiate ourselves to that individual. And in, the, in response, we're ignoring people who don't look that way. And James saying, folks, you need to understand, followers of Jesus, you need to understand, that is just plain wrong. That is absolutely wrong. And here's how we know he meant that. For he says, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So James wants his readers right up out of the gate. He says, I want you to understand that favoritism is rooted in evil. It's rooted in evil. And the first reason he gives for that is he says, because it's evil, because we rank people. We, we place some people above other people, and we place other people below the, that same group of people. And he says what's wrong with that is that's not how God sees us. That's not how God views us. That's not how God interacts with us. And for that reason, he says, and as God's followers, as God's people, he does not want us to treat people that way either. We don't rank people. Let me share with you another true story. Some of you recognize the name Tony Campolo. He lives in Philadelphia. He's a Christian sociologist, a speaker, well-known, someone I admire. But he tells a story about being uh, teaching a sociology class at the University of Pennsylvania. And in the class, and, and I don't know how they came to this, it doesn't matter, it just leaves me curious, he was talking to the class about the world's 
oldest profession. And in the process of that discussion, obviously Tony Campola being an outspoken follower of Jesus was trying to look for a way to bring up spiritual issues, to talk about Jesus in, in, in an acceptable, appropriate format. And so he said to them, he said, guys, class, what do you think the world's great spiritual leaders would have said to a prostitute? And class was silent, kind of like you all are. He says, well, just think about it, class, really think about it. I mean, what do you think Buddha would have said to a prostitute? And nobody dare answer. And so he said, okay, guys, no, seriously, you know, work with me here. What do you think Confucius would have said to a prostitute? Still nothing. He said, okay, what do you think Muhammad would have said to a prostitute? Still, you know, cricket silence in the class. So finally, he goes for a Hail Mary, which is really rare when to get to anyhow. He said, so what do you think Jesus would have said to a prostitute? Well, that question, one of the young men sitting on the very front row raises his hands and he said, uh, Jesus never met a prostitute. And Tony Campolo, being the, the biblical scholar that he is, say, well, you no, know, actually he did, and, and I can show you. And the student, the young man said, prof, I don't think you understand me. Jesus never met a prostitute. And Tony goes, no, 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 he did. In fact, I can not only show you what he did, I can tell you what he said to her. And the student said again, Prof, we're talking past one another. Because I know you're talking and referring to Mary Magdalene, but do you really think that when he saw Mary Magdalene, he saw a prostitute? And Tony said, he was absolutely right. You see, that's not how Jesus looked at anyone. And he says, for that reason, you and I as his followers should never view others through that lens with that kind of prejudice, with that kind of favoritism. But there's a second, you know, reason, folks, and a basis for, for why James says favoritism is rooted of evil, and that is because favoritism flows, he says, and puts us in the place where we think we're God or we play God. And I would suggest to you folks, anytime we do that, it's very, very dangerous. Just read the New Testament. It's very dangerous when you and I put ourselves in the place of God, and here's why. Because only God has the wisdom and the right to judge someone else. We don't know their circumstances. We don't know their life. We don't know their struggles. We don't know any of that. And so God and God alone is to seat, sit in his throne. Well, there's one final reason why James tells us that favoritism is evil, and that is because it flows, he says, at the very end of that verse, from evil motives. And let me give you the motive. Really, at the core of favoritism, folks, is the desire, the attempt, the intention to treat other people less than they are. It's to treat them less than they are. And, and that, that attitude, that disposition wars against the truth that we believe, that we sing about, that we profess as followers of Jesus. And that truth is this, that everyone is made in the image of God and therefore everyone is of infinite worth and value. And therefore, James is saying, folks, anything that does not hold up that truth, anything that wars against that truth, is evil. That's James's argument. Back in 2015, I had the incredible gift, privilege, a friend of mine, by his graciousness and kindness, Larry knows him well, invited me and actually paid for me to go with him to Israel. And we spent about three and a half weeks there. But one of the things we both agreed we wanted to do while we were there was to visit the Holocaust, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center there in Jerusalem. 
And I've got to tell you, folks, it's just, I can't even describe all the emotions I had when, when we walked through that door. And the reason I say that is because from the very minute you walk through that door, you are confronted with the evil and the atrocities that were committed against one group of people by another group of people for no other reason than prejudice and hatred. I mean, the thing that struck me so much as I walked through this is these were people just like me. These were husbands and fathers. These were grandfathers and children. These were, I'm going, they're just ordinary people. And yet their lives were destroyed, their families were destroyed. Some, you know, their, their, their whole lineage was attempted to be destroyed just because of another people's prejudice and hatred. And it just dripped of evil. You couldn't spend, I probably spent three or four hours there, couldn't spend eight or ten hours there. And I just walked away with just this sense of utter, utter evilness, the atrocities that we're capable of committing against one another. And again, part of what troubles me with what I see in the Ukraine is that same hatred, that same evil is at work. But listen to me. Bring it a little bit closer home, folks. Prejudice and favoritism is no less evil and just as evil, folks, when it shows up in schools and in workplaces. And what I mean by that is whenever prejudice and favoritism begins to determine who gets to be sat with at lunch and who isn't sat with at lunch, who's accepted, who's invited in, and who's rejected at a party, it's just as evil, folks, when prejudice and favoritism decides who gets hired, who gets fired, who gets promoted, who gets affirmed, who gets appreciated and recognized in the work or at, in the company or on the team. It's every bit as evil. So let me meddle in your life just a little bit. And just know that as I say this, I meddled in my life all week. So here's my question for you this morning. So where are you playing favorites? Is it white collar over blue collar? Is it car over truck? Is it college educated over a GED? Is it owning a home over versus renting a home? Is it home over trailer? Where are you, where are you playing favorites? Here's what I want to say to you in light of that. Here's what I said to me in light of that, folks. Wherever it is, we need to know it's not of God. And it absolutely has no place, no place whatsoever in the new community that God calls us into, this place that we call the church. But James wasn't finished, for he goes on and take a look at what he writes next. He said, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? So what James wants us to understand here is he's, he's saying to his readers, listen to me. And he's kind of building this case. He's saying, listen to me. Not only is favoritism rooted in evil, folks, but it absolutely, completely ignores reality. For he says there is absolutely nothing about someone having money that should lead us, guide us, prompt us to treat them any better or for that matter, any worse than someone not having money. And the case he's actually making here is if we are going to show favoritism anywhere in the church, and we should, then he said, then show favoritism to those who are poor because they, that's the way God responds to those people for no fault of their own have found themselves ensnared in poverty. So here's the principle. Here's the taker. Here's what James, I think, is trying to say to us. Look, be about the process, church. Be about the, the, the process, fellow believers, of lifting up the people that God is trying to lift up. 
because most, some of you know, some of you are, are there, but I've talked to, I've been, had the opportunity to know many, many affluent people, and what they tell me, the people that I greatly respect in that is going, look, money has its honor of own. Don't give me special attention. And that's what James, James is not talking down on wealth, is not talking down about having possessions. He recognizes like we do, many good things be done with finances. What he's saying is, don't play favorites. And be about the process that while wealth has its own affluence, its own fame, its own benefits, poverty doesn't. And so it's saying, focus on lifting those up who life has trotted down, but God's trying to lift up. And in fact, he goes on and he basically says, you know what, folks, if we do not get rid of favoritism in the mix of our hearts and our life in the church, then we will destroy this new community that Jesus gave his life for. Because, folks, when we show favoritism, we are living like the rest of the world. In other words, he's saying our attitudes or actions are absolutely indistinguishable from the rest of the world because our values and priorities that we're living out and demonstrating has no connection with the heart and priorities of God. But James has one final point to make in this whole issue of how favoritism ignores reality, and he makes it by saying this, by writing this. Isn't, the rich, isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Now, some of you probably heard what I said earlier about the, James is not down on the rich, he's not, he's not saying it's bad, it's not godly, and you read that and go, well, it seems like that's what it's saying, and it would until you understand the context. See, the context is this. You need to understand. Let's go back to what I shared at the very beginning of the series. James is writing to first century Christians. And what he's alluding to, what his, and his readers would understand this, is in that day, many of the rich, many of the powerful in, in Israel, in, even in the world that day, saw Christianity as a huge threat. And the reason they saw it that way is because they understood. They were able to look and extrapolate out and realize that if his followers would actually do what Jesus taught, then what Jesus taught them would actually lead to the end of slavery, which is how they were making a lot of money. They understood that it would lead to the end of child labor, which would, would make them cough up to pay adults. They understood that it would lead to, to the, 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 the elevating of women and stop the oppression of women, which would suddenly mess with their male-dominated society. And not only that, but they realized, and it really is related to the, that, to the secular, the, in reality, if his followers followed his teaching, then it would, turn, it would completely turn their social status up on its head, that the people who had power would no, have, no longer have power because they saw in the church, they were aware that in the church things like this were going on, that slaves were actually teaching wealthy people, that the poor were actually teaching Roman centurions. And so what James is alluding to is what his readers understood, that, that often, many times, a lot of the time, in the early centuries, especially there in his time, that most of the persecution was instigated by the very people who had something to lose, by the people who had wealth and power. And that's what he's getting at here. He is not you know, denigrating or putting down people of wealth. He's simply recognizing that many of them didn't want to lose what they had. And let me give you one biblical example that I think will illustrate this and help you understand it. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, you might want to look at it this afternoon, but in the book of Acts, chapter 19, we read about a man by the name of Demetrius, who as a profession was a silversmith. 
And literally, in Acts chapter 19, Luke tells us how Demetrius incited a citywide riot because of the fact that Paul was increasingly penetrating the, the city of Ephesus with the message of Jesus. People were becoming followers of Jesus, and as a result of that, his business of making civil, silver, slow down, Jerry, silver idols and images of the Greek goddess and goddesses were going down the tank. And again, he realized, if I don't stop this thing, I'm going to go out of business. And so he incited a riot in the city to put down Christianity and ultimately to get rid of Paul. Now take all that and understand then in this context what James is saying is we and the church should never elevate one group over another. Because it's saying when you and I do that, we are bringing the sick way the world works into the very place that God established to serve as a showcase for what a healthy community is all about to counteract the sick culture that we live in, that they lived in. But again, James doesn't stop. He has one more thing he wants to address. He wants to address the root cause of favoritism. And so he writes this. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who breaks all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. Again, what James is saying here is he's clearly saying favoritism violates God's law. And to showcase that, to help his readers see that, he, he, he points back to what Jesus said and what we know is the great commandment, how Jesus summed up the law. And I want to read it for you if you're not familiar with it. James is pointing back to this statement from Jesus when, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so what James is saying here, what he wants his readers to understand is that when we show favoritism, we're not only being snobs, more importantly, he says, we are breaking, we are violating the great commandment Jesus gave us to love one another as ourselves. But he isn't done. He actually ratchets up the voltage by alluding to something else his brother, his half-brother Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. For what he's pointing the people back is where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I've got a reference if you want to look at it uh, to later on today or even while I'm speaking, but he, he, he alludes back to where Jesus says, you know what, if you harbor anger in your heart, if you harbor hatred in your heart, and then pat yourself on the back because you didn't commit murder, you're missing it. And the same thing, James is alluding to the fact where Jesus says, you know what, if, if, you, if you lust in your heart, but then pat yourself on the back because you didn't commit adultery, once again, you're missing it because what James, Jesus was meaning, what James wants to understand from all of that is, is they're both saying that folks... That kind of anger is of the same spirit as murder. That that kind of lust is, a, is of the same spirit as adultery. And here's what they want us to understand. It's all sin. And what James does and why he's doing that is he wants to call favoritism what it is in God's eyes. He says it's sin. And therefore, James says, we have to eliminate it from our lives. We have to eliminate it from our church because it violates the law of love. To love others as we love ourselves. So let me ask you again a question. 
and I'll ask it collectively this time, where are we snobs toward others but don't think we are? Where, where do we function and live as snobs and we don't think we are? Let me prime the pump for you. Have you ever said to yourself, you couldn't pay me enough to live there? Have you ever said to yourself, look at what she's wearing? Have you ever said to yourself, you know what? I would never buy that brand. I would never shop in that store. I would never let my kids hang out with a kid like that. But let's turn up the heat. Do you ever find yourself priding yourself on not being a racist, and that's a good thing to be proud of, but then honestly, when you hear that someone of another color might be moving in next door or down the street, you're less than thrilled? And folks, I, I, I ask that because it brings up for me one of the ugliest, and in fact, I think the ugliest form of snobbery there is. And that's being a sin snob. And what I mean by that is this, that, that I see sin snobbery all the time in the church. It's where we're okay with our sin. We're okay with the sins that I commit, but other people's sins? <laughs> Whoa. We throw the book at it. So, for example... We're okay when we talk negatively about people to our friends or more, most of the time with our friends and nobody yells foul. But then when it comes to somebody struggling with pornography, profanity, when it comes to someone being divorced, well, again, we just want to throw the book at them. And you say, Jerry, why do we do that? And we all have that temptation if we don't give in to it, but we all have that temptation. I'll tell you why. It's because in our snobbery, we think our sins aren't as offensive to God as other people's sins. We don't think that our sin is in damaging to Jesus' mission and the church that he created as we think other people's sins are. And so we act like snobs, spiritual sin snobs. And I share that because that really sets us up to what James' final point is, where he says this. He says, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. In other words, we don't have to do this as followers of Jesus. We have been set free. But he says, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. So James is saying, when you strip it all away, when we get honest with ourselves, when we get rid of all the excuses, he says, when we strip it all away, folks, he's saying favoritism at its heart reveals a lack of mercy and a lack of grace in our lives toward others. Because the reality is, folks, when, when we're being judgmental, when we're showing favoritism, when we're being prejudiced, we feel no conviction, no compunction, that is no guilt about setting ourselves up as God and passing judgment on other people, whether they are worthy of being valued, worthy of being treated with dignity and respect. We, we just aren't bothered by it. And James says, understand this, church. Understand this, my readers. Understand this, my brothers and sisters. People I dearly love, he's saying. When you do that, you will be judged in the same way. Because he said, mercy flows toward those who show mercy. So in other words, folks, when we judge others by the standard of being merciless, he says that's the standard God's going to use toward us. 
And I don't know anyone, myself included, who wants that standard applied to them. And so James says, therefore, get rid and eliminate all favoritism in your life and reject every hint of prejudice in your life by judging others the way you want to be judged. Because when you do that, here's the good news. He says, when you do that, you will reflect God's love and you will be modeling the community that Jesus gave his life to create. The community that you and I are to be living in today and exemplifying in this time of conflict, in this time of division, in this time of war. He says that's what it means to not show favoritism. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if it's only for me, I just say thank you. Thank you so much for what we've learned today. Thank you for James's letter and thank you for the fact that he does not ever pull his punches when it comes to describing what it truly means to live as a credible follower of Jesus in this world. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us today learn the lessons you had for each of us individually, corporately, about not showing favoritism and about treating other people and seeing other people the way you see them, which is people of incredible worth. And so, Father, help us and empower us to live lives through the power of your Spirit that will honor you and honor others and bless us in return. I prayed in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Anything back? Ah, there we go. So, as we turn our attention to worship uh, by giving, I want to, first of all, thank you all for your generosity. Um, you know, and last week we, we asked God to speak to us about our generosity, and we said that that is a bold ask, a bold prayer. And so, if you did pray that prayer, um, I hope that you're hearing from God and that you're responding to Him. And so, today I want you to know that God, um, <clears throat> that, you know, it is godly that in wise practice to evaluate your generosity. <clears throat> and so there's no area of our faith in which God calls us to have a, a set it and forget it mode. And, uh, and that includes our giving. And so, you know, the Lord provided a parable to help us understand the urgency of evaluating our giving. And Jesus told the story in Matthew 25. It's a familiar story. You'll recognize it when I talk about it. But it's about a man who was going on a journey. And this is verse 14. It says, and again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to him or to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, uh, one bag, each according 
to his ability. And then he went on his journey. And when the man came back from his journey, he called his servants to account for what he had entrusted to them while he was absent. And so, you know, I want us to understand, you know, Jesus, our, our master, has gone to heaven. Uh, and, but make no mistake, he is coming back. And so either we'll meet him whenever we take our last breath or when he returns, we will give an account. And so today, because we live in an age of grace, we wait for Jesus' return and have that opportunity to make the most of what he's entrusted us with during this time. And so, but the good news of the gospel is that, um, is that the Lord has been very generous to us by sending his son, our Savior Jesus. And so now in this time that we have on earth, we get to honor him by the way that we're generous in our giving. So I want to encourage you to evaluate your giving. If you're married, I want you to evaluate that with your spouse. And if you're single, evaluate that with a Christian friend or a mentor who you know is living a generous life. And as we do, you know, we're going to ask God to help us take that next step in our generosity uh, and as he teaches us how to be faithful. And so that when he returns um, or we go to him, we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so as we uh, just take a few minutes to pray over our offering in just a moment, we're also going to pray for the people uh, of Ukraine. So we'll do that in just a moment. But I want to give you direction on giving today. Uh, In person, you can give. There's envelopes at the back of the room, on the table, before you exit. Um, You can also give online. They're on the screen there for you. You can text to give, or you can also uh, go to the website and slash give. So we... uh, As we do that, let's pray and ask God's blessings on that and for the people of Ukraine. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to be in your house today, to hear your word, God, to worship you. And so uh, we pray today over the offering. Lord, we thank you for generous hearts. We thank you for how you're changing us as we take those steps, God, those small steps, whether it be the first time we've ever given or as we evaluate our giving and see if you are asking more, Father. And as we trust you, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts, that you would draw us deeper in our relationships with you. And God, see that we can trust you. Uh, And so, Lord, we're thankful for that today. And so, also, we want to pray for the people of Ukraine. Lord, as we we want to pray for peace, God, amongst uh, these people, um, the fighting that's going on. Lord, we know your word talks about Uh, wars and rumors of war and all of those kind of things father and the devastating loss that uh, that happens because of war and people's lives are lost their their homes god uh, their life uh, just it's a tragedy and so we want to lift them up lord today we pray god that you would uh, help a quick solution come about and so help us as we trust you through this help us to look to you jesus you tell us to pray And so that's what we're doing today, and I want to uh, ask that you would encourage our hearts and remind us, Jesus, as we go through our week, just in small moments, that we would just lift up these people in both uh, nations, Father, that as they, uh, Lord, as this this is going on, Father, that we would just remember them, bringing them to you, Jesus, and uh, Lord, we pray as we leave this place, God, that uh, we would, you would stir our hearts and be reminded this week about, uh, Lord, uh, how we can look to you, Father, and, and see if we're being merciful, if we're treating people like you say to treat people, that we're loving people like we love ourselves. Uh, God, that we, uh, Lord, look to you and trust you. And we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So good to be with you again this week. I look forward to worshiping with you again next week. I pray you have a great day. Thanks.